Hi, I'm Dr. Rebecca May, and this is our Arcana Advances. Follow along as we explore all renal research happenings at Arcana Laboratories. Hello, welcome to Arcana Advances, where we discuss exciting new research in renal pathology performed by our own physicians. I'm Dr. Rebecca May, and today we have Dr. Chris Larson, who will be discussing one of his recent publications in Kidney International, titled Serum Amyloid P Deposition is a Sensitive and Specific Feature of Membranous-like Glomerulopathy with Masked IgG Kappa Deposits. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. First, um, can you describe membranous-like glomerulopathy with masked IgG kappa deposits? Quite a mouthful. Yes, it's so, a terrible name. Yes. <laughs> I hate the name, I'll be honest. I tried, uh, backstory is when we first described this, I thought by saying how we wanted, would want to abbreviate it, and I tried to name it accordingly, and I, it, it ended up with the initials MMMG, and the idea was we were going to call it Triple MG. Mm-hmm. And... The reviewers of the publication didn't like the name, and, and this was the one they more or less suggested. And <laughs> I regret now that I didn't fight more for Triple MG, mm-hmm. but this is what we ended up with. So hold on. You asked. You asked me to describe <laughs> this disease, right? Yes, yeah. Um, membranous-like glomerulopathy with mast IgG kappa deposits. I'll start with the backstory. This was a disease that was discovered... Uh, or not discovered, I guess it was it was identified somewhat by accident. Uh, we had a biopsy from a children's hospital. It was a young young girl who was 14 years old, and we looked at the biopsy, and it showed an enormous number of subepithelial deposits, very large subepithelial deposits, but the immunoglobulin staining was completely negative, so no no IgG, no kappa, no lambda, nothing was positive. There was just some staining for C3, 1 to 2 plus staining for C3. So it was a little bit baffling because it otherwise looked like a membranous. I mean, I just felt like this has to be a, a case of membranous, but, mm-hmm. but it's not. And so occasionally when a biopsy is performed, this is rare, but a, a rarely uh, in the suite where they take the biopsy, they may accidentally take that tissue that was intended for immunofluorescence and put it into the formalin. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, they render that tissue, it, it, it can't be used. I mean, even if you just dip it in the formalin, you can't yeah. use that for immunofluorescence anymore, for, for frozen immunofluorescence. I, my fear is that somebody has this tissue, something's happened to it, it's just not useful for routine immunofluorescence. So I said, I'm going to repeat this on the paraffin. And I repeated it on the paraffin. I, I did the paraffin immunofluorescence, or some people will call that, you know, the pronase digested tissue. It's more or less you take the formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue and you perform a protease digestion step and then you do the direct Im- perform the direct immunofluorescence. And when we did that, it, it was exactly what I thought would happen happened. I, I only stained it for IgG, interestingly. I didn't stain that one for kappa and lambda. But mm-hmm. IgG was three plus positive. And so I said, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, they've tampered. They've, they've somehow... Something's happened to the tissue that was submitted for frozen immunofluorescence, and and but we got to the answer. It's okay, you know, we got there. And Did you so, end up doing the kappa lambda? I didn't done that. One. Okay. Didn't. 
So every day here, we have a, a conference at Arcana where we present interesting cases, interesting biopsies, new research studies, whatever. And I brought that case to conference and I said, hey, guys, I saw this biopsy. This is what happened. And everybody was like, great job. You know, you, you, you got to the answer. And so... I was patting myself on the back. Well, about a month later, uh, a colleague uh, named Jane Bell, Dr. Jane Bell, came to me, and she came into my office in the middle of the day, and she said, I have another biopsy that's just like the one you showed us a month ago. It, it, it's a membranous, but it's only staining for C3. I don't understand this, but you know what? I bet they did the same thing. I'm going to mm-hmm. stain mine uh, for, for in, with paraffin immunofluorescence. And she did the whole panel. Mm-hmm. And when she did, the IgG... And the kappa were positive and the lambda was negative. And I and we thought, well, isn't that strange? This young patient yeah. and it's got this, it's got this IgG kappa. But again, we just assumed somebody must have made a mistake with the tissue submitted for frozen immunofluorescence. And I did go back and stain my young patient for kappa and lambda, saw the same thing. And so we started to wonder, could this be something unusual happening here? Well, over the course of the next six months, four or five more biopsies came through the practice exactly the same, where they would be negative or um, very, very weak for IgG, and they'd have a little bit of C3 staining. But when you did the paraffin immunofluorescence, uh, you, you would see the positive staining for IgG and kappa only. And so there, uh, a pattern emerged. The patients tended to be young. By that, I mean... Uh, 40 or less, the vast majority are, are, are 40 or under. They tended to be female, about, if I remember right, it's 70 to 80% of the patients are female. And it was common for them to have what we termed a vague autoimmune phenomenon. And mm-hmm. so by that, I just mean they had, they may have a positive ANA, but they don't have a diagnosis of lupus. I mean, mm-hmm. DSDNA is negative, complements are normal. There's really no diagnosable autoimmune disease, but they do have some positive studies for lupus, like an mm-hmm. ANA, or, or I remember one of the patients had ITP, mm-hmm. you know, so um, that, that's kind of the, the backstory to how we in, in, anyway, we ended up seeing, you know, enough of these patients. Eventually, we we wrote a case series uh, describing this this entity. Mm-hmm. Um, a few interesting things, in addition to the demographics, is that despite the fact that they are kappa restricted, despite the fact that they have light chain restriction on the biopsy, the patients don't have any detectable monoclonal immunoglobulin in the in the blood or in the urine. So in addition to not having a detectable uh, monoclonal immunoglobulin in the blood or urine, they the, several of them underwent bone marrow biopsy, no evidence of any clonal population. Uh, so despite the fact that they have light chain restriction, we really don't believe this to be uh, an MGRS. Thank you so much. That was such an interesting yeah, sorry. backstory. That was a, little, no, that was a really, long answer to your question. I really liked that because I didn't know how all of this really started. Yeah. How long ago was that that you described that? I don't remember. It's been a long time, Several Rebecca. years, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Lose track. So uh, you were, this current paper, you were trying to find an antigen that is associated with this process. So you used mass spec of laser capture microdissected glomeruli. And can you just briefly talk about how that works? That sure. technique? Sure. This is a, a technique that uh, is commonly used 
for typing amyloidosis. You, mm-hmm. can, you can micro-dissect the amyloid deposits, and when you run the mass spec, you're able to detect the the protein that's really the the characteristic protein of the amyloid or what's driving the 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 at the amyloid deposition. So and this is selecting something that you expect to have positivity instead of scraping a whole side slide that's right. with tubular that's interstitium right. and everything else. So here you went after the glomeruli where So the in this are. in this we were we were micro dissecting the glomeruli. So from a biopsy you may microdissect 10 to 20 glomeruli and mm-hmm. they when you look at the sample after microdissection just with the naked eye it just looks like specks of dust you know mm-hmm. you can hardly even see it in the microfuge tube but when we digest that and run the mass spec believe it or not from every one of those samples you'll get two or three thousand p- proteins wow. are identified so it's really quite amazing what can be done with mass spectrometry today but so Really, what we're doing here is we're looking for differential levels of a protein within a disease state versus controls. And usually we'll use disease control. So in this case, we would take cases of, of this disease, membranous like glomerulopathy with mast IgG kappa deposits, and we would microdissect glomeruli from a group of those and compare with other types of membranous. Membranous, that's PLA2R, that's thrombospondin, other uh, other types of membranous. And so as sort of a proof of principle, you showed that the PLA2R cases had a high fold change of PLA2R right, detected right. in them. And same for the other types where you knew the antigen. That's right. right. So your protocol was working. And then what did you find in the um, membranous like glomerulopathy with mass? Yeah. <laughs> MGMID. We'll go MGMID. What did you find in those cases? Yeah, exactly. We wanted to make sure that we were, that the technique worked for what we wanted, which was to really, we were wanting to discover an antigen. This is, I think everybody's kind of bought into this technology now. Uh, Dr. Sanjeev Sethi has really popularized the use of it for detection, for discovering uh, proteins like exostosin and NL1. This was before he'd published that work, so we still weren't sure. We felt like it was working well, but we wanted to prove that to ourselves. And so we became convinced it was very, very sensitive and specific for being able to identify the different types of known membranous cases. And so when we did this and compared the the the, the known membranous, the PLA2R, the THSD7A, with the M- MGMID cases, there were a few proteins that really were... Uh, differentially present in the MGMID, and the, a couple of them you would expect, IgG and CABA. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you would have expected that. But in addition to that, you saw uh, many proteins that seem to be of the innate immune pathways, I mean, mostly complement-type proteins. Mm-hmm. And then the most significant proteins, the one that, w- that had the, m- the highest level uh, in the MGMID cases compared to the controls, had the, the highest p-value was SAP. I'm going, um, if you see my hands, and my hands is, is at the top right because that's <laughs> yeah. in, in, in the plot where it was. It was the most significant protein present. And it was first I saw that, and I just thought, hmm, that's curious, you know, that I wonder what that means. And so I bought an antibody for SAP, and 
stained these biopsies with the with the antibody and found that those deposits we were seeing granular capillary loop staining in these cases exactly like what we were seeing uh, for the IgG and Kappa. So obviously I, that's when it really became interesting like okay this is this SAP it seems to be uniquely present in the deposits in this type of glomerulonephritis mm-hmm. the the PLA2R the thrombospondin, what stained those, the deposits did not stain. So there was SAP present in those, not just in the glomeruli, but specifically in the deposits in the glomeruli. And that's also really important, right? Because we're not going to be able to do mass spec routinely, at least at this point, right. on every membranous case. Right. So, um, yeah, it's a useful biomarker yeah, for, so for the disease. It, it, it's much easier for us to do an IHC and, and see that. Yeah, exactly. This is a disease that, you know, it, you, you have to have some index of suspicion in order to even... We don't routinely perform paraffin immunofluorescence on mm-hmm. biop. You only perform that analysis if you think that it might add something. And so you have to take that next step from your routine immunofluorescence. And so it provides a level of confirmation that we're dealing with a specific disease entity. So... In these patients that have MGMID, uniformly, 100%, those deposits will stain positive. But in patients with other types of membranous, they're negative. So we find it useful just clinically mm-hmm. in a routine clinical pathology practice for the diagnosis of this entity. Now, our real hope was that this could tell us something about the the underlying pathogenesis of the disease. Mm -hmm. I still believe that it does, but at this point in time, I really can't tell you exactly what that means. We could never definitively show that these patients have autoantibodies directed against SAP. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I I mean, by Western blot or ELISA. So what it... Exactly. Uh, it, it may not. That doesn't mean they don't. It's just that we couldn't show it in vitro. Mm-hmm. We could not show that. So also, why the patients have kappa restriction in the deposit? Still, I'm not confident that this really gives us any answers as to why that is the case. Mm-hmm. It tells us. A, it does tell us a little more about the disease, though. And you went on to test SAP. Um, antibody staining on a large cohort of cases. Right. Yep. You picked kinds. a lot of different cases. Mm-hmm. Um, a whole wide range of cases. And basically, it was positive in all the cases with these mask deposits. Mm-hmm. They were all IgG-kappa-restricted. It was negative in another mask disease that we see, cryo. Mm-hmm. Um, and other membranous cases, it stained in amyloid, as you might expect, because it is present in amyloid. Um, but it also detected something interesting that in it detected some membranous cases that didn't mask. That's right? true. That's true. Yeah, that was one of the interesting findings. We did have a group of patients that had glomerulonephritis that was a, a membranous pattern, and they stained for IgG1 mm-hmm. kappa. Yeah. IgG1 kappa. But they were not masked. They stained on the routine immunofluorescence for that. So... Interestingly, the only group that SAP was positive in, aside from the, the, the truly kind of masked MGMID, were these biopsies of membranous that had IgG1 kappa. 
And so I do more or less that I think what that informed was that there is a subset of MGMID that does not mask Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And, you know, we don't even know exactly why, you know, that's usually a question people ask when they learn about this disease. Why don't they, why doesn't it stain on the routine immunofluorescence? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, I don't know, (laughs) you know, but it doesn't. We just know that it doesn't. But in a subset of cases, the IgG1 cap, it can be detected by routine immunofluorescence. And that probably is the same disease as the, as the mast ones, mm-hmm. because they also have SAP in the deposits. The IgG2, the IgG3, the IgG4 kappa, no staining for SAP. Only IgG1, if, if membranous, if it was a monotypic membranous with IgG1 kappa, not all the time, on, on just routine immunofluorescence, not all the time, but some of the time, those would stain positive for SAP. Yeah, so it's important to do that in clinical practice when you see that come up to do yeah, that stain. Yeah, I think so. If you mm-hmm. have a routine, if you have a case that even by routine IF stains uh, positive for IgG1 kappa, I think it's worthwhile to do the SAP. And what do we know about the function of SAP at this point? Yeah, we know surprisingly little about this protein. I mean, it's named for what we know best about it, serum Mm -hmm. amyloid P. It's ubiquitous in amyloid amyloid deposits. It's always present. Regardless of the type of amyloid, SAP is going to be present. But what it's actually doing, why we, I mean, it's evolutionarily conserved in in all invertebrates. So Mm -hmm. it's clearly important. It has a lot of homology with C-reactive protein, Mm -hmm. an acute phase reactant, um, there is data to show that it is involved in the innate immune system, probably is, is important in that. Uh, there are mouse models in which they uh, an SAP deficiency results in an autoimmune kind of lupus-like gl- uh, disease, including glomerulonephritis. So mm-hmm. there are, it definitely seems to be an Im- important in, in, you know, the innate immune system, but really exactly how or why is still still a mystery. We still I mean it's amazing how much we still have to learn. How yeah. when you really start at learning about things like this and you may have talked about serum amyloid P your whole life, you know, your whole pathology life yeah. with regards to amyloid, but you start looking at what this is and you realize we have no idea. We really don't know what this protein is present in humans for. It's present at quite quite high levels, you know, but yeah. yet we don't know why. So so much left to discover, yeah, right? That's for sure, yeah. And does this provide any insight for therapy for these patients? How do they normally do? Yeah, so in the last case series, we had two case series. One was a smaller one where we initially just described the, the disease and then a, a little bit larger one that also included some follow-up data and treatment data. And it was all over the map, to be quite honest. I mean, some in some ways, it was similar to what you see in membranous. I mean, the there were patients that would progress to end-stage kidney disease. Then they'd have a transplant, and they'd have recurrence in the transplant. Mm. There were other patients that would just spontaneously remit. No treatment whatsoever. Um, and unfortunately, there did not seem to be really a correlation between any specific treatment and the outcome. Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate because when people look at the paper, or these are emails that I feel quite frequently, how should I treat this patient? The answer mm-hmm. is still, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's not any good evidence-based therapy at this point in time for this disease. It does seem to be 
it's, you know, have, the hypothesis is that there's, that there's some autoimmune etiology probably to this. It mm -hmm. seems reasonable to me to have the patient on some form of immunosuppression, mm -hmm. but exactly what regimen that is or what that should look like, we just don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today and telling us about this interesting disease process. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. Really wonderful. Uh, and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Arcana Labs. And do you want to share your Twitter handle? It is RenalPathDoc. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes store. For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.